All right, I invite you to grab a seat. If uh, just uh, we're going to take just a couple of minutes at the front end here to talk a little bit about some in-house uh, business with us at Cornerstone. If you're visiting with us, please uh, bear with us. We do this very, very rarely. Um, this is usually our time where, and we're going to do that this morning, this is usually our time where we open the scriptures together, the Bible that we believe God has given to us, and, you hear, and to hear what uh, he would have to say to us. And I will invite you to grab your Bibles and open them to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning, and I'll introduce that in just a moment. But um, if you have a mailbox at Cornerstone, which are out in the back foyer there, and if you're new to Cornerstone, you don't have one, you're most certainly welcome to get one. We use those as a way of communicating sometimes. And in your mailboxes, if you have one, or if you don't have one uh, mailbox, you can grab a copy of this down at the uh, info desk in the foyer, is the uh, proposed budget for Cornerstone for uh, this calendar year in 2016. And we're going to have a a meeting together on Sunday, February 21 at 7 p.m. in this room to, to talk about that, to process that together. But just wanted to, uh, as elders, we wanted to give just a one heads up and a little bit of rationale as to um, what is contained in that budget, or at least one piece of that as it relates to um, our staffing here at Cornerstone. Um, back in December, we had a congregational meeting where we talked about what is, what's a vision of Cornerstone? If what, What's that vision of the future that we would see, that we would just um, want to work towards, that would compel us forwards. And um, our vision is that we would want the real Jesus, the real Jesus, to be non-ignorable in Niagara and even among all nations. That, uh, first of all, the real Jesus, that there's, there's so many misconceptions about who Jesus is out there. That the message that so many have received about who Jesus is, is, is not the, the picture of um, of the person that's revealed to us in the scripture and the person that has risen from the dead and is alive and well and at work even now. And so we, wanna, we want the real Jesus to be made known and to be then non-ignorable, that we can't compel anyone to put their faith in Jesus, to begin to follow Jesus, but we would want the real Jesus to be made known so that everyone has the opportunity um, to follow, to believe in Jesus and become his follower, become a worshiper of Jesus. Um, and so we want him to be non-ignorable. We want the real Jesus to be um, pressing. Um, and, we, and we want, so we want many churches in the Niagara region and among all the nations making Jesus known um, throughout uh, our days, throughout our weeks, throughout our years together. So how do we do that? Our mission then is that we exist to glorify God. That's the reason why each one of you, us were made was to actually bring glory and reflect glory back to God. And we do that by making disciples of Jesus. That we, we want to see, we want to be about raising people up from um, not yet believers in Jesus and, and inviting them to faith in Jesus and begin to follow him and growing in maturity as a follower, as a disciple, as a learner, as an apprentice of Jesus. All right? And so... Um, we've on, back in December we um, laid out seven objectives that we think that we are need to move towards 
to help achieve this, to see this vision come to reality, to see this mission lived out. And the seventh of those objectives was is that we would align our ministry structure and our, 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 dis, our mission of making disciples. And I want to flush that out just in, in for, for a couple of minutes here as to what we mean by aligning our ministry structure with our mission of making disciples. If you've been around Cornerstone for a while, you've probably seen this picture, and we'll be teaching through it again. Um, but we believe that the gospel of Jesus um, is a... You can't really see that very well. I'm sorry about that. Um, but anyhow, there's, we see a, a full um, gospel of Jesus, that, that there's, there's many aspects to the gospel of Jesus, that there's um, what we call the, the gospel content, that there's uh, truth that God has broken into history. There's a gospel community that, that he's not only broken into history and not only he calls us to believe some things, he calls us to belong to his community. He adopts us as his children. And he then sends us out as servants that, that, that God loves the poor in this world. God loves the broken. God loves to reverse the values of this world. And so um, based on those three aspects of the gospel, the gospel um, content, the gospel community, the gospel cause, where's three identities of a disciple, that disciples are learners, that, we, that there's truth to be learned, that there's um, ways of living to be learned in community, that we're family members. So we're learners and we're family members and we're servants to this world. And so the way in which we make disciples then has to be informed by that. And so we want to teach the word and we want to live out the word together in community and we want to serve the world. And so what we're saying when we say we want to align our ministry structure with our discipleship is that we want to be about making disciples. We want to align how it is we do that with teaching, with living together in community, and with serving the world. So one way to think about this, to help illustrate what's driving some of our thinking on, on the change that we're suggesting here, is to think about different age categories in those different um, ways of making disciples, of teaching and community and outreach or in, in serving the world. And so if you think about it in, in this kind of a matrix so where you have kids and we have um, youth and we have adults and thinking about, okay, how do we teach youth and how do, we, how, how do we live out community for adults and how are kids outreach and all of that kind of thing, all right? So if, if we were to fill in that grid, it would look something like this. These would be some of the major uh, major pieces that our church has been about in making disciples. So for kids, we have Sunday school going on. Or we're teaching them the, the, the good news. We're teaching them the Bible um, right now and so, uh, over in that wing there. For youth, many of our youth are normally in the room here uh, today. Many of our high school students are up at Camp Crossroads on a retreat this week. And, but um, they're often here, and that's where a, a primary teaching venue for them and for adults as well. We have internships, where we're teaching some adults some things as well. And how, how then about community? Well, the primary way we think that kids experience Christian community, where they see the gospel lived out, where they see the, the faith of Jesus lived out, is actually within the family unit. All right, that's, that's God's design. Um, as kids get older, their parents actually, sorry, Burst your bubble here, parents. Your influence over your kids actually um, diminishes somewhat. Not that you're not important, but there's then other voices 
And there's other uh, influences um, that begin to take hold. And so we've, we have a junior youth group, we have a senior youth group, junior high, high school ministries, whose primary function is to build community, to foster a community. And for adults, we have a pastoral care ministry, we have life groups where, that meet kind of weekly or bi-weekly in each other's homes where we seek to live together, to exemplify the Word of God to each other, to show each other how it is that we go about following Jesus. All right, for kids outreach, we've done a few, we've done VBS, we've done some seasonal events for, you know, youth, youth have been involved in missions trips and they've done some service opportunities and adults in our serving the world, we have global partners in Thailand and Burundi and in uh, the eastern part of Congo that we're very involved in and um, here in our local community of Meals Plus Ministry serving those uh, in our community with AIDS uh, who are often sick, bound to their home, and we developing friendships with them, delivering meals to them, all right? So we've got all these ministries um, and all of these ways in which we're teaching and living the Word together in community and serving this world in all these different age groups. Now, typically, uh, in the past, and this is true of most smaller churches, is we have organized then horizontally. And so we'll have a lead pastor who is basically in charge of all of this for adults, and then maybe then we'll grow and we'll uh, hire a youth pastor who's um, in charge of teaching and community and outreach for youth, and then we hire a kids director for in charge of teaching and community and outreach for kids. Now we think that there's actually some we've experienced some of the limitations of this. It's totally understandable why we've done this, but there are some limitations to that model. The first is that um, you're supposed to be good at everything. That when you're giving leadership, um, so for myself as a lead pastor here, that I'm supposed to then be good at teaching, I'm supposed to be good at building community and um, fostering outreach. And actually what is needed in uh, resourcing and equipping in those ministry areas is different gift sets. And so you end up becoming having to be the pastor of everything, the leader of everything, and leading in areas in which you're actually not very good. Like I, to be honest, confession time, I am probably the worst life group leader in the entire room here. All right? Some of you have been in life groups that I've led, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like I, and so there's no way in the world that I should be given, um, giving leadership to our life group ministry. It just doesn't make sense. I'm not gifted in that area. I believe in them. I like them. I want to be a part of one. But should I be leading it? Absolutely not. And on and on it goes. All right? Um, there, it also creates some disjointedness between, because we have, if you have different people teach, uh, in charge of teaching or, or resourcing and thinking about teaching in our kids, and then someone else talking about teaching in our youth, and then someone else thinking about teaching in adults, it's, it's much more difficult to, to build unity uh, across those um, age divides. All right, and so what we are, um, and so here's our current, if you want to try to break that up, um, it's really confusing. The yellow little boxes are where we have some interns giving some leadership in Sunday school to kids and youth and junior youth. Um, we've got Jeff kind of overseeing the, the, uh, the kids as well as so, sort of some of the adult stuff, and I'm mostly involved with adults. And it's really confusing and um, 
again, doesn't necessarily focus on gifting. And so what we are suggesting, what we're wanting to move towards is instead of thinking horizontally, to think vertically. And to then actually build um, a leadership team of pastors who, um, so we'd have a teaching pastor who would oversee, not be in charge of, not do um, hands-on everything, uh, teaching, but who's thinking about, who's resourcing, who's equipping teaching across all age groups. And we have a community life pastor who's thinking about resourcing, equipping, community building, exemplifying, living the word together across all of our age groups. And an outreach pastor who's thinking about, who's resourcing um, our outreaches, our, our outreach ministries um, across all age groups. That they together, um, and so this would be our new org chart is what we're suggesting. Something similar to that, at least, is on your, uh, the, the handout of the, of the budget. That, um, again, the congregation is still appointing, appointing a board of elders who, who is the, governing, the governance team. Um, I, as lead pastor, would be held accountable by the board of elders. And then quarterback, I'd lead a leadership team that would be comprised of the teaching pastor, which would be myself, as discerned by our elders, a community life pastor that we would uh, be looking to hire. We're, we're looking to uh, transfer uh, Jeff Martins to outreach pastor and an operations director that gives support, that gives that infrastructure support to all of our ministries. So things like facility, finance, administration. And Darren Tom has been our chair of our board of management. Um, and he, he's, as a volunteer, will be giving leadership as operations director. All right, so we'll have a leadership team that is accountable uh, to the board of elders. And then each one of those leadership teams has groups, has ministry teams serving um, not underneath, but alongside them. That, that the, uh, the pastor, the leader on the leadership team overseeing that certain area is there to equip, to resource, to lead, to help, to encourage, um, and to create alignment across all of our teaching or community or outreach ministries. We hope that makes some sense to you. And so um, we'd also hire a part-time, what we're suggesting is hiring a part-time high school ministry director, youth pastor. Um, We have, as you you may know, we have uh, a large kids ministry, a large Sunday school right now. And those are kind of coming up through junior youth. And we're in in a couple of years, we have the very, a potential for a very, very significant um, high school ministry, and we want to begin laying the foundations for a really vibrant um, high school ministry. We also, I should, I should mention too, that we've kind of taken um, a little bit more of an in-depth presentation. We've talked to a number of folks among us um, who are involved with teaching Sunday school. And so Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday school, what's happening right now over in that wing is actually going to be volunteer-led. We have a great team of people who have um, agreed already to give leadership of um, specific areas. Um, I think there's five different areas. Um, And so we have teaching our kids is an area where we actually have a high degree of skill of gifting, of leadership qualities in our congregation and availability, people who are willing and available to give leadership to that. So that's kind of where that staffing number uh, that you'll see in the budget is coming from. We wanted to share some of that thinking, some of the reasoning, some of how we feel God's leading us 
in that way together with us. Um, so that's, that's that. We're going um, to continue now our series in the Gospel of John. We, uh, on Sunday mornings here since uh, beginning of December, have been working our way through the, what's called the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is one of four Greco-Roman biographies written about Jesus shortly after Jesus' life and death, burial, resurrection, ascension to heaven. Shortly afterwards, some of the people who had walked with Jesus in a very close way through his earthly ministry, through his life, wrote down, we believe inspired by the Holy Spirit, but wrote down this biography, the biographies of Jesus. There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was Jesus' best friend, his closest confidant as he walked this earth. And John has written this gospel for us, what we call a gospel, this biography, um, so that we would have a picture of who Jesus is. And he organizes his gospel, he organizes this biography according to seven signs that Jesus um, accomplishes. Seven signs that, that point to these miraculous signs that point to the identity and to the purpose of who Jesus is. We talked about the first of those signs a couple of weeks ago as Jesus was at a wedding and he turned um, water into wine. This morning, we're, we're turning into chapter 3, and in chapter 3 begins um, the first of several in-depth conversations that Jesus has with people. We're going to, over the next number of weeks, um, look at, so, so you, today uh, we're beginning our, the encounter that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. And then in the next chapter, chapter 4, Jesus meets us, what's uh, the woman at the well, it's often called, the Samaritan woman. All right, there's a, he heals a man at a, at a pool called, called Bethesda. He heals a Roman official's son. So there's several, several of those are actually the signs that Jesus does as well. But there's now, right after each other, several encounters with Jesus. Several uh, people who are now encountering Jesus and having extended conversations with him. And we get to peek in on that and say, what would, it, what would Jesus say to us if, if we would approach him, if we would enter into conversation with him? We're going to read the first 10 verses of John chapter 3. And as we do that, and I invite you to follow along, but as we do that, listen for what, what is Jesus emphasizing here? What's, what's Jesus teaching? And uh, especially Jewish teachers, but teachers today too, one of the ways that you... Um, to get across your main point is that you're going to repeat things. You're going to em- give emphasis by repeating certain things. So listen for what Jesus is emphasizing here at the beginning of his conversation with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. 
Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? This is God's word. And so we're introduced here to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a member of the Jewish ruling council. It's called the Sanhedrin. He was uh, a Pharisee, so he belonged to the Pharisee party of, um, of Judaism, of, of Jewish teachers. Pharisees um, took the scriptures very seriously. Of all of the groups, they were probably actually the ones closest to Jesus in terms of theology and in and, and many ways. Um, and that may surprise you because Jesus reserved some of his harshest criticism, some of his harshest rebukes are actually directed towards Pharisees. But Pharisees took truth, um, understanding, seeking it out, seeking truth out, and, and obeying, living the truth. They took that all very seriously. Now, again, they're often the bad guys in the Gospels. They're, they're some of the... The Pharisees are the ones responsible ultimately for the death of Jesus, for, for, um, for bringing him uh, to the cross. And that's because their religiosity, because their religion um, really led them to become proud. And, and, and they, became, they became power hungry. They, 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 they thought very highly of themselves and their obedience. They allowed that to puff them up, themselves up. And put others down. So their religious pride as well as their religious power that they wanted to hold on to really led them in a path in opposition to Jesus. But Nicodemus was different. Nicodemus stands out as an example of Pharisees. He is obviously open. He's, he's interested and he's willing to be taught by Jesus. He comes to Jesus and he says to, he calls him rabbi, which is... Um, at least a, a collegial term. He's at least putting Jesus and himself at the same level. He's saying, you're a teacher. You're a rabbi. He says, rabbi, um, we know that you're a teacher come from God. So you're a rabbi, you're a teacher, and you've come from God. So there's three ways of building Jesus up. And He's saying, well, we know that God is with you. No one could do the things that you're doing unless God was with them, was with you. And so he's complimenting Jesus. He's, he's lifting Jesus up and saying, I'm, I'm here to, I want to engage in a respectful dialogue. I'm seeking out truth. I'm, I'm seeking out uh, to understand who you are and what you're all about. And so I think you're a rabbi. I think you're sent by God. No, no. That's not all of who Jesus is, right? We believe that Jesus is a teacher, that he is a rabbi, that he is sent from God, that God was with him. And, we, and yet so often, maybe as, as Christians, we could be guilty of, you know, if someone says, well, Jesus is a great teacher, we'd be like, yeah, yeah, but he's way more than that, don't you know? He's also God. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him, right? Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't even correct him. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, you, you got me all wrong. He's like, like, you're on the way. You're, you've got a good start. You're a teacher. 
You're a teacher. You're, that's a good starting point. And I think actually the teachings of Jesus actually are a great starting point for people if you're seeking out uh, truth, if you're seeking out what this world is all about and who Jesus is, and begin with his teachings. Because I think his teachings bears, you know, marks of divinity. He, his, his teaching will lead you into the truth and will lead you to, be, to come to believe actually that he's more than a teacher. So Jesus doesn't put him down and say, I'm not just a teacher, I'm Lord as well. But no, he's saying, okay, start. You're, you think I'm a teacher? We'll start there. But Jesus' response in verse 3 um, almost ignores whatever Nicodemus is saying. Nicodemus comes with a compliment, and Jesus replies by saying, unless you're born again, which really is the emphasis here. He says three, four times in this passage, you need to be born again. He says, you won't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Unless you are born again. Sometimes we think about born again Christians. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that term, born again Christians. Um, sometimes I think we think they're kind of on the loony fringe like of Christianity, right? Born again Christians are, you know, their eyes are a little crooked and... Um, they're, they're a little radical, they're the fundamentalists, or they're uh, cultish and strange. Or they've had some emotional, spiritual experience. But to Jesus, but to Jesus, a born-again Christian is a redundancy. The term born-again Christian is redundant to Jesus. If you're born again, you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you're born again. Sometimes it's called regeneration, rebirth, spiritual life given to you, made alive together with Christ, the New Testament says. To be a Christian is to be born again. So we're going to talk about what does it mean to be born again. We're going to talk about this, um, this teaching this morning just for a few minutes. I won't be able to exhaust the teaching on it, but I just want us to see a few, a few things about the teaching. The first thing I want us to see is the necessity of being born again. Jesus emphasizes this point, right? He's saying, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. If he says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says later, you must be born again. He's saying it's absolutely critical. It's absolutely necessary for you that you experience what's called the new birth. Now, this is actually encouraging for us because Jesus ignores kind of Nicodemus' compliment. And he's saying this to Nicodemus of all people. He's saying, Nicodemus, I'm not even sure that you're qualified to engage in discussions about who I am because you may not be born again. And unless you are born again, you cannot actually come to the correct conclusion as to who I am. And he says it to Nicodemus, though, is a person who has it all together, right? Nicodemus is a person who has it all together. He's a Pharisee, so he has studied and he has obeyed the Scriptures with intensity from the time of, he's a little child, but he's probably quite old now because he's now a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a Sanhedrin member, which means he's wealthy, which means he's civic-minded, which means he's powerful, which means he's influential. And so here we have a guy who is a goody-two-shoes, 
No one could say a bad word about him. No one could find any fault with his lifestyle. We've, we've got someone who's, who's studied the Bible his entire life, who knows it inside out, probably has it memorized. Someone who's wealthy and powerful, someone who's influential, someone who's looked up upon, who's, the, who's a professor in the school of theology. So this is someone who's got it all together. And to this one, to the one who's got it all together, Jesus says, you actually need to be born again. And he's categorical. Unless, right? It's the, unless there's sunshine and rain, the crops will not grow. Unless there's fuel and air, there will be no fire. Unless, it's categorical, there's no exceptions. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you won't enter, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. He's absolutely necessary. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born again? The, the, the term there where Jesus says born again, and he says it three times, is um, the Greek, there's two Greek words. One means to be conceived, and the other means either again or from above. And probably Jesus actually has both uh, of those views of again and from above in mind. It's literally to start a seed. Now, Jesus is saying what you actually need is a new life. You don't just need a new teacher to follow, Nicodemus. I know you think I'm a teacher. You don't just need a new teacher to follow. You need transfer. You need transformation. You need new life. You don't need to just reform your life. You actually need to be transformed. Imagine you own a peach or a peach orchard. And you decide that maybe I actually want to get in the apple business. And so what do you do? Do you just, you know, prune your peach trees way back? Just cut them back. Just cut lots of the tree off. You'll probably end up with more fruit, but they'll still be peaches. Well, maybe you just need to then kind of just prime the pump a little bit and, you know, get some apples and tie them on. And that'll just get that peach tree going. Well, no, obviously that's silly, right? It won't, it won't work. To get apples, you need to dig out the peach trees, roots and all, and plant a new organism, to plant a new life form, to put a whole new tree in the ground. But that silliness is what so, so many of us often do with religion, right? When we, when we sense that we have some sort of need for God, when we sense that something's going wrong in our lives and, and we, you know, there's something that's out of our control, we need some power, we need some blessing, we need some help. And so we start to either prune our lives, so we have to say, well, I better start, stop doing this and stop doing that and stop doing this. And well, then maybe I'll just prime the pump a little bit and I'll start going to church and I'll start praying and I'll even open my Bible and I'll read it. And so you stop doing all kinds of things. You prune your life back and you start doing a whole bunch of new things. You start tying on some, old, some new kinds of fruit. What Jesus says is what you actually need is a new birth. That your religion won't cut it. What you need is an action of the Holy Spirit where he implants his life in you. 
so that the very root of your heart is changed. It's, a, it's talking, Jesus is talking about a complete change, a change of mind, a change of heart, of our will, of our emotions, of our desires and our motivations and our thinking. It's the planting of a new life. It's the transfer into a new realm. Uh, the Apostle Peter talks about being transferred from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. It's a whole new realm. And when you're born again, you can see the kingdom. You can enter the kingdom. What does it mean to enter the kingdom? What does it mean to see the kingdom? It means that you see the king, that you have a new king. The kingdom of God is, is, that, is everywhere that God's rule and authority is, is um, in place. And so you enter the kingdom, you have a new king. Nicodemus here doesn't see the king. He doesn't see the king. But by the end of the Gospel of John, Nicodemus does. At the end, when Jesus has been crucified and all his disciples have fled, it's Nicodemus who comes and takes Jesus down off the cross and provides a proper burial for him. At the point where his life would be endangered, where his reputation would be at risk, where he's putting his wealth on the line, he saw the king. He saw the king. This king was more real to him than his money. And so he risks his money to honor the king. His, the king was more real to him than his safety, and so he risks his safety to honor the king. His reputation, the king was more real to him than his reputation, and so he risks his reputation in order to honor the king. Jesus is talking about the change that happens in Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Where it's the same eyes looking out the same window onto the same street in the same town, but everything's different. Right? Scrooge has new desires and new motives, a whole new governing principle for his life. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so here's the test. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not sure if I am born again. I'm not sure if I know what you mean. I'm not sure if I have experienced that. How do I know? Well, Jesus said this, the Spirit's like the wind. The Spirit is like the wind. The Spirit is invisible, but His, uh, his effects are evident and felt, Right? If I were to say, you know what, it's really windy in here right now. It's, it's, it's really windy in here. And you'll be like, uh, no, it's not. And I'll be like, how do you know? You can't see the wind. Maybe it is windy. Well, no, of course, if it was windy in here, some of your hair would be blowing in the wind, right? The effects of the wind are visible. So how do I know I was born? Thankfully, I don't remember it. But how do I know I was born? Do I go to my birth certificate and say, well, yeah, I've got a birth certificate, so I must have been born. No, I'm alive today, right? Every single one of us alive today, the reason you're alive is that one day you were born. Your birth certificate is not an evidence of your birth. Was your, your birth certificate tells you when and where. 
And maybe to whom? I think your parents are on there. I, I meant to look at one, but I kept forgetting. And so in terms of testing, you know, am I alive? Am, am, am I spiritually alive? Is the life of Jesus living in me? We're not meant to think back to a prayer we prayed or a, an experience we had or a, a, a card we signed or an aisle we walked. We don't hang on to your birth certificate and say, yes, I've been born again, if there's nothing happening in your life. And so here's the first test is are you growing? Are you growing? Grow, living things grow. Living things grow. It's not possible that the power of God would come into your life and not mess up your hair a little bit. And so if there's dishonesty in your life, or fear in your life, if there's cowardice in your life, if there's selfishness in your life, if there's self-protection in your life, is are you growing out of those things? Is the spirit the spirit of God cannot live with those things? And so he'll be rooting them out by the new life that he's planted there. And the fruit of the spirit is love. Are you growing in love? Are you are you growing in loving other people? Are you growing in joy? Are you growing in integrity? Are you growing in humility? Because the Spirit of God can't live with, with, with things that are opposed to His character. He's got to do something about them. And so the first test is, are you growing? Second test, um, the second test that I'd, I'd suggest is Romans 8, verse 7. Romans 8, verse 7 says this. Romans 8, 7 says, the sinful mind, so this is the mind, this is the heart of someone who is, um, before being born again, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you. Verse 6, actually, the mind of sinful man is, is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And so the, the other test is are, is, are you hostile towards God in the depths of your heart? It's possible to be, to be religious. It's possible to come to church. It's possible to pray. It's possible to be outwardly look like a Christian. It's very possible to have been baptized. It's very possible to um, have done all kinds of things that make it look like you're a person who's alive to God. And you ask God for help. But someone who's been born again has, a, has their heart oriented towards loving God, towards saying, I want to obey you in every area of my life, whatever it is that you'll have for me. I delight in you. I'm not, I'm not hostile towards you. I'm actually not... Um, I'm not holding it against you, God, that you are commanding me in certain ways. I'm not doing that with hostility in my heart. I'm not doing it begrudgingly. That I'm actually realizing that my desires are beginning more and more to match your desires. And I'm beginning to understand that more and more, I want, you, I want to follow you in every area of my life. I want to follow you in my family life, and I want to follow you in my business life, and I want to follow you on Sunday morning, and I want to follow you on Friday night. I want to follow you in my social life. I want to follow you in every area of my life. 
And I want to delight in you. And if you're realizing, you know, right now, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't really relate to this. In the, in the pit of my gut, I feel like maybe I, I, I don't know this experience. Again, it doesn't, you don't point back. Don't think back, oh, I don't know the day and the hour and the time. You may not remember your birth, your spiritual birth. But are you alive today? Do you experience that life welling up in you? And John has already told us how we can experience that life. He said in chapter 1 of John 1, he said in, in John 1 verse 12, to all who received him, Jesus, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor human will, but born of God. It means, and Nicodemus actually asked that question. His question in uh, his second time, he says, how can, he, it's translated, um, how can these things be? It says, like, how can this happen? He's saying, how can this happen to me? How can the new birth come to me? And Jesus is saying, you receive me. You believe, it's through receiving, it's through faith in Jesus, it's believing in his name. It's looking at Jesus and saying, I see all that you've done for me, that you've lived a perfect life, you've obeyed in every way in which I've failed, and yet you've died a death in my place. But you didn't stay dead, you rose back to life and you did that all for me. And so I'm resting completely in that. I'm resting completely in that. As someone once said, all you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. We want to just hang on to, you know, part of it's kind of my goodness, and part of it, like I want to keep control of my life a little bit. I want this area to still kind of be under my domain. All you need is nothing. I'm going to rest on nothing but you, Jesus. But sadly, most people don't have it. I pray that you'd have nothing as you come to him today. And that he'd give you the grace to receive him, to believe in his name. So you could experience new life welling up 